Good morning, everyone. Morning, morning. Welcome to the service this morning. It's good to see you all here. Lovely day. We always talk here about how we're a church family, and one of the things we do as a church family is celebrate together as well as walk with each other through difficult times, and we'll celebrate together this morning because it's someone's birthday. Rob, give us a wave. And so, um, yeah, let's do the... Well, it's great to have everyone here. It's great to gather together, but I wonder how you feel this morning. Um, this week, I've been doing a lot of breaking things, not intentionally, not in a fit of, you know, anger or anything, just treading on things in the house generally, breaking plastic bits off toys. And, you know, it made me think that actually, we often break things in the week, we often break things in our lives, but sometimes we can feel a little bit broken ourselves. And I often turn up to things and think, oh, do you know, I just feel... A little bit broken today. My back's hurting or I haven't slept well. Not feeling brilliant. I don't know how you're feeling this morning, whether you're feeling spot on, everything's working together wonderfully, or whether you could describe yourself as feeling a little bit broken this morning. I've turned up and actually either I don't feel great or things aren't brilliant. But you know, the wonderful thing is that we have a God who doesn't just accept us if we're feeling top-notch or if everything's working perfectly, thank the Lord. We have a God who welcomes and accepts those who are broken and those who are in need of him. In the Bible, in the book of Ezekiel, it says this, God says this, I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. Wonderful picture of God. We don't have to search and search to find him. He searches for the broken and the lost. He binds up those who are injured and in need of healing. And that's the God we gather before. And that's the God who welcomes us this morning. So every single one of us has reason to stand and worship him, whether we feel broken or whole. So let's stand together and let's sing together as we gather before God. The invitation to come to him. Come see this glorious light. Let's stand and worship this morning. Come before a God who accepts and welcomes the broken, but also a God who loves our world, which is very broken. And so as we pray together, I have my world ball, which I do like to have. I'm going to pass it round And I just want people to look at the World Ball and shout out a country or a city or whatever you want to shout out that God can, we can lift that city, that place, that country to God, that place that's broken and he can receive and accept it as we pray. If you don't want to, just pass it on. I am going to throw it. Be ready. Lord, we lift you these countries. China. Well, as we gather before God, we're very aware of his greatness. We've sung of his creative power, but also of his wonderful love for us. And we worship him because he is a wonderful God, but it also makes us aware of how we are before him. We talked about being broken and many things in our lives. And when we look to God, it makes us very aware of where we stand. And so we're just going to have a time 
of confession where we bring our lives before God, where we offer to him all that we've done, said, thought, um, things which we are pleased that we've done, but also those things which we don't really want to think about because we're ashamed of how we've acted and how we've been. And I just want to have a time where we sit in silence and just think about our lives, lay our lives before God, ask him to reveal to us how he sees us, but also those things which he would like us to hand to him. I'd like to invite Rob to come and read our passage this morning. Um, We started a series on the book of Joshua, for those who are unaware, and we've done the first chapter. We're now into chapter two. The reading is from the book of Joshua, chapter 2, starting at the first verse. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, Some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts sank, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, Go to the hills so that the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. The men said to her, This oath you made us swear 
will not be binding on us unless, when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. We will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Thank you, Rob. Yesterday we had our Leaders Away Day and we were talking over lunch about how I always mention football and how not many people, apart from the few, know a lot about football in this church. And I said, well, I'm trying a different sport this week. So how are we on golf? (laughs) Okay, brilliant. How to relate, it's wonderful. Well, I want to tell you a little bit about golf, particularly about a man called Jean van der Velde and his exploits in the 1999 Golf Open Championship. Anyone ever watched any golf? A bit. Any of the big championships? Well, the Open Championship is a big championship that happens every year. And uh, in 1999, Jean van der Velde, a Frenchman, as you might have gathered, led the Open Championship by three shots, which is a good margin, and he was coming to the final hole. So, in all respects, he should win. Three shots, final hole. He could afford to take six shots to win the championship, even though in the other rounds that he played this hole, he played it in either three or four shots. So six shots, plenty to win. So he stood on the tee, which is the bit that you stand on to start, just in case. I'm not, I'm, but, you know, you might not watch any. And he stood there, and normally, for this, this particular hole, you'd take an iron from the tee, which is a particular club, because it's safe, and it gets you where you want to go, in the middle of the fairway. And he'd always done this, every single time he played this hole. It was the last hole, he was three shots in the lead, needn't take a risk, need he? He took a driver from the tee. Now, a driver, very, very powerful club, but often unpredictable. He got the driver out. He took a driver from the tee, and the shot went wild. He just missed the water. There's a lovely little brook. He just missed the water by a few feet. Everyone was quite relieved. And then he went up to hit his second shot, having just missed the water. And he had a choice. He could just knock it onto the fairway and then take another shot onto the green, or he could go for the green, 
which was a very risky shot. Well, you're about to win the Open Championship. What do you do? Play it safe? No. Jean van der Schaatveld went for the green. He ended up in the long grass on the other side of the green. Then with his next shot, he went into the water, which he'd just missed with the first shot. And then he nearly took a shot out of the water, but decided to take a drop, which is a penalty, so that's another shot. And then he went into the bunker, just at the front of the green. To be fair, he played a really good shot from the bunker up to the hole, but he ended up with a triple bogey seven. Seven shots. And he ended up in a playoff with two other players. Had to play three extra holes, and he lost. And at the time, one of the commentators was heard to say, I just don't understand what on earth he was thinking about when he took the driver from the tip. Because, you see, even if you don't understand golf, you would have understood that as Jean van der Velde stood on the final tee of the Open Championship in 1999, all he had to do was to follow what he had done every other day of that tournament. All he had to do was to play the hole in the way that he knew he could play it. But instead, he decided to do something he didn't need to do. He took a driver from the tee. And subsequently, he ended up blowing his chances of winning. And as we look at the second chapter of the book of Joshua, in a similar way, we find the new leader of the Israelites is in danger of doing the very same thing. Because having been commissioned by God in chapter 1, following the death of Moses, and having been given a clear task to cross the River Jordan and take possession of the land, and having then gone and ordered the Israelites to get ready to do this, or if you like, having followed all that God had asked him to do in exactly the way he'd been asked to do it, Joshua suddenly decides to go rogue. He suddenly decides to take a driver from the tea. And before Before following what God wants him to do, entering the promised land, he starts to check things out for himself, just to see if everything will be okay. And so he secretly sends two spies to look over the land and check out Jericho. Now, of course, this is very similar to what Moses did back in the book of Numbers, when God told Moses to send some men to explore the land of Canaan. Joshua himself was one of the men that was sent out with Caleb and the other spies at the time. Most of them came back very disheartened at what they had seen. It was a mission, as many of you will know, that ended in the Israelites turning back from Canaan and wandering in the desert until they got to where they are now, on the banks of the River Jordan, waiting to cross into the Promised Land 40 years later. Joshua knew this, of course, Because he'd been there, and he'd done it. And he also knew that when God had commissioned him, he'd not ordered him to check out the land like he had ordered Moses all those years before. Instead, he'd simply told him to go and get the people ready. But Joshua had other plans. He took that driver out the back and decided to do something different. And in the same way as Jean van der Velde in the 1999 Open Championship, his plan almost ended in disaster. 
Because as the men, as these two spies entered Jericho to spy out the land, what they were unaware of was that the king of Jericho was already nervous. He'd seen the Israelites massed on the bank of the River Jordan. And he'd heard the history of the people of God. How their God had rescued them from Egypt. How he'd parted the Red Sea. How he'd demolished Pharaoh's armies. And how he'd defeated other people after that in battle. He was wary of the threat which the Israelites posed to him. And so unbeknown to Joshua, he had men watching and waiting for any move of the Israelites to see when they were going to come after him. So when the two spies entered his city, immediately he's made aware that some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. He knows where to find them, of course, because the house of Rahab, the prostitute, is the only place that they would really be welcomed. It was a house that doubled as an inn, most probably, on the outskirts of the city. It was a place where visitors of many kinds found themselves lodging. It was probably a place that he had under surveillance, just in case people came. So having followed the plans of their new leader, Joshua... These spies now find themselves in deep trouble. They're trapped. They're within the walls of Jericho, with the king of Jericho aware of their presence, at the mercy of a prostitute who will decide whether they live or die. If ever a poor decision had been made by a leader, Joshua had made one when he sent the spies to check out the land. But then something amazing happens. Because when the guards of Jericho reach the doors of the house of Rahab and demand that she bring out the men, Rahab, a woman who really has no reason to risk her neck, says this, Yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they'd come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gates, they left. I didn't know which way they went. Go after them, quickly you might catch up with them. Or if you like, Rahab, a woman who lived on the edge of her society, a woman who was both used by those who she lived among and also looked upon with disdain because of what she did, an insignificant character in the life of Jericho, decided to use the only weapon she had at her disposal. She lied. She lied to her men, to keep the men of God safe. And when she did that, she saved their lives. And you know, the reason she did this was not because she had no other choice. She could have easily given them away. It was no skin off her nose. It was no danger to her to hand over some Israelites. Rather, the reason she did it was because she too had assessed the situation. She had seen the Israelites massed on the banks of the River Jordan. She had heard the stories about their God. She'd listened to the fear of her people in the streets, just like the king of Jericho had. But instead of fearing and preparing to fight or preparing to run, she'd come up with a different solution to this problem. You see, Rahab the prostitute had decided to trust God, the God of Israel. And above her people and her situation, she decided to take her chances with him and put God first. And so she says to the spies, 
I know the Lord has given you this land. I believe it. I know it. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. She says to the spies, I know that we will be defeated because I believe your God is greater than anyone. So I choose to side with you. I choose to side with your God. And then she says to them, so now swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. And without question, without querying her motives or discussing the consequences or demanding proof of her loyalty, the men of Israel accept Rahab. This prostitute who a minute earlier had lied to her king and her people, they accept her. And they say to her, our lives for your lives. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. Or if you like, when faced with a woman who was not one of their own people, a woman who had no standing or security or worth, a woman who had just lied to give them freedom, these men welcomed her. Not simply with a promise to save her when they came to claim the city, but with an invitation to join God's family so that together they could journey on and learn what it was to be the people of God. And you know, this really is an amazing story tucked away in the Bible, often used as an illustration for children. It's an amazing story because Rahab, of course, is not simply rescued from the destruction of Jericho along with the rest of her family by tying a scarlet cord to her window and then left in the desert to perish while the Israelites move on. Instead, she's rescued by the Israelites and she's brought into the life of the people of God. She becomes one of them. And because of this, she becomes a shining example to those who have welcomed her. We know this because she's held up as a woman of faith in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, alongside people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses himself. A passage which says, By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. She's also used in the book of James to show how faith, to be of any worth, needs to be accompanied by action. Was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodgings to the spies and then sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead, says James. But perhaps the most significant evidence of God's welcome to Rahab becomes clear at the beginning of the book of Matthew, when Rahab is not simply held as an example to those around her because of that one act that she did, but she's actually included in the family line of Jesus himself, as we find her name nestled at the centre of his genealogy just before the account of his birth. Rahab the prostitute who put her trust in God, was welcomed by the Israelites and became a woman who gave birth to a son who is an ancestor of Jesus Christ himself. It's an amazing story. 
And you know, we can learn much from this story. We can learn much about the wonderful grace of God. A God who accepts and welcomes and loves everybody. Not a God who loves those who work hard and do the right thing, as I think the Tory manifesto said one time. It got under my skin. Not a God like that, who works hard, who loves people who work hard and do the right thing, but a God who loves those who are far from him. A God who loves the broken pieces. And at the first chance he gets, welcomes them into his family. And we can learn much from the actions of Rahab as well in this story. How this woman who had nothing, this woman who lived in a harsh, unaccepting, unforgiving society, a society that was doomed to destruction, looked at the situation around her and despite the overwhelming odds against her, decided to trust God, decided to put her faith in a God she knew very little about, but who she trusted to be more loving and more powerful than anything else she had encountered in her culture. We can learn much in our culture about how Rahab acted in her culture and her great faith in that time. But perhaps most challenging and what we can learn most from here as the people of God is the response of the men of Israel as they went to spy out the promised land, that as these spies found themselves faced with the plea for help of a woman they hardly knew, a woman whose lifestyle was far from ideal, instead of being cautious, instead of guarding the doorways to God's family, instead of attempting to keep Israel pure and God's people holy and other nations at arm's length, Instead of demanding Rahab prove her faith before they rescued her, they did the opposite. They swung wide the doors of God's kingdom and let his grace fall upon her without question. Our lives for your lives. We welcome you into God's family. Or if you like, these men of Israel realised that as God's people, their job was not to restrict access to him but to open the way to as many people as possible. And you know, sometimes today, I think that as the people of God, we have forgotten this. That as God's people, our job is not to guard the doorway to his family. It's not to decide who gets to enter in or whose lifestyle fits God's kingdom or which people have proved their worth. We're not here to police the system and make sure it's safe for those who are good and do the right thing. We're here to open the doorways as wide as possible so that the grace of God can fall upon those who really need it. Whatever their lifestyle, whatever their choices. If you want to use Bible college speech, which I'm sure you really don't, you might say that we are here to be a living sacrament, or if you like, a translation of God is a visible sign of God's grace to the world. We're here to be a visible sign of God's grace to the world in the way that we act, the way that we speak, the way that we love. Not a place of judgment or questioning or indifference, but a place where anyone can find God. Anyone 
Rich, poor, gay, straight, accepted, rejected, clean, dirty, young, old, pillar of society, or prostitute. Anyone can find acceptance and encounter God in whatever way and whatever time scale is right for them. This is the family of God is what we are called to be. A visible sign of God's grace in our world today. And if we were like this, you know, if we truly lived this out together and also on our own, maybe we'd really see what God's family should truly look like. And I imagine it would probably be a lot different to what we might expect or maybe even what we might feel comfortable with. Very much, in fact, like the genealogy of Jesus at the beginning of the book of Matthew that contains all sorts of weird and wonderful people. Let's have a moment of quiet as we reflect on what God has said and what he's saying to us today. We're going to sing our final hymn together. The organ grinds up. Tell out my soul. A wonderful hymn. Um, Tell out my soul the greatness of the Lord. How do we do that? Through our actions, through our love, through the way that we speak and the way that we are. Let's stand to sing together. (laughs) 